Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 165 of The Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. And we're here today with thank yous to our Patreon sponsors. Yes. Thank you to Karen, who changed her patronage, which you can do really easily. You can hire it or lower it or pause it, which is one thing we really like about Patreon. Super easy to use. And we also want to thank Helen. Yeah, Helen did an individual donation, which you can also do. She sent us a check. You can also send us money on PayPal. And all of that information is on our website and in the show notes. Yep. And we totally appreciate it. It definitely helps keep us going. It sure does. And we have congratulations to offer to Kathleen in Chicago. Yeah, Kathleen was the winner of our Patreon monthly book giveaway. She won a copy of The Ski Jumpers by Peter Guy, which Chris and I both have a copy of also and can't wait to dig into. Yeah, so hope you enjoy whenever you get to Kathleen. So Chris, what are you currently reading? Well, I have been reading tons of school stuff, lots of articles. It's been really a great start to the semester. Did I talk yet about what classes I'm taking? No, I don't think so. I'm taking one called Archives, History, and Collective Memory. So we're reading a lot of the foundational articles right now about what is collective memory. That's been just completely fascinating. And I see those articles or some of the issues that come up in those articles reflected in everything I'm reading for pleasure or for school. And then the other class is a field experience internship where I'll be working long distance with the National Willa Cather Center doing transcriptions of Cather's address book and a ledger where she kept track of her royalties for her books. Super excited about that. You're going to be actually looking at her handwriting. Yeah, she had really horrible handwriting. (laughs) (laughs) Worse than mine, which, you know, makes me a little happy. But yeah, she had pretty tough handwriting. But, you know, I think when you're writing in an address book, you do tend to be a little bit more careful than when you're writing a letter, possibly, but I know there'll still be challenges. So I've been practicing by reading some of those letters of hers that have been digitized just to get re-familiarized with her handwriting. Very cool. So all that by way of saying, I'm just now getting back into How to Read Now by Elaine Castillo and really enjoying it. I do need to get my own copy. As Emily can see, I have tons of sticky notes on this one. So I do. I want to get my own copy so I can really mark it up. Have you ever accidentally marked up a library book? You know, I don't think so. Me either. Yeah, for the longest time, I used to just mark books in pencil. Mm-hmm. And then I just went wild and started using pens, uh, sometimes different colors. But I don't think I've accidentally marked up a library book. I haven't either. I've dropped one in a bathtub. Yeah. Or one or two or a few. But yeah. 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 I dropped one in a lake once. My dog B ate a couple <laughs> before we realized that she had a little bit of separation anxiety. So, yeah. What about you? What are you reading? I'm reading The Rabbit Hutch by Tess Gunty. I'm both reading it and listening to the audio, which is narrated by the author, Tess Gunty, Scott Brick, Suzanne Torin, Kirby Hayborn, and Kyla Garcia. This is one that's been nominated for the National Book Award. I just want to read you the opening sentence. The title of the chapter is The Opposite of Nothing. On a hot night in apartment C4, Blandine Watkins exits her body. 
She is only 18 years old, but she has spent most of her life wishing for this to happen. Mm. Really sets a tone, right? Totally does. Yeah. I want to know more. Yeah. And this is a debut novel. And I've been texting back and forth with Russell, who was on the last episode to talk about his Booker Prize reading. And remember, listeners, he was hoping that he had read some of the National Book Award books, which were announced last week. The answer is he has not. He's very disappointed. But eight of the 10 that have been nominated are debuts, which is pretty amazing. That's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. And The Rabbit Hutch is one of them. And it's a work of fiction about a group of people living in an apartment building in a very rundown town in Indiana. I think it's great to do that for debut authors. I know there are a lot of worthy writers who have put out another book this year that's been well received. So many books are deserving of awards. I think authors should get an award just for writing a book. But to give debut writers that boost, it's pretty... Yeah, I agree. I mean, I was wondering if it increases the concern over that whole idea of sophomore slump, you know, oh, my debut was just nominated for a National Book Award. No big thing. Yeah, well, hopefully they're well into their second. Yes. Yes. (laughs) If they choose to, because, you know, not everybody needs to write more than one if they're moving on to other things in their lives. No pressure. Right. And a lot of them have written other books, you know, like nonfiction, or Mm -hmm. they write essays and articles and stuff. So yeah, good point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you and I read one of the National Book Award nominees. We were so excited to see Shudder by Ramona Emerson nominated. That was super exciting to see. Yeah, we could almost feel everyone over at Soho Crime dancing in the hallways. (laughs) Right. Even though I think most of them work virtually. But anyway, (laughs) But interestingly, Russell said that what the judges were looking for this year was books that deal with the immigrant experience and the idea of everyday life in America. So just a reminder that they're not always looking for the best book or the best author in the country. It's books that might be telling a certain story in a particular year. Right. Yeah. And I think that traditionally the National Book Award has been about books that represent American life, life in America. Yeah. We should maybe do a episode one time when we look into the history of some of these awards. That could go very deep. It could. And possibly dark because it also involves the publishing industry. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> well, moving on. <laughs> Emily, tell me about what you've just read. I finished Finley Donovan Knocks Him Dead by El Cosimano. I talked about it on the last episode. I've read the prior novel, same character. Finley Donovan's a single mother with two kids. She's gotten divorced, and she's also a novelist, so it's very meta. (laughs) So she gets involved in these crime situations, and then those end up becoming inspiration and almost even just direct characters in her book. And this one was exactly what I was looking for at the time that I read it. Someone is out to get her ex-husband, So she has concern about her children staying with him and is more interested in solving the mystery of who's looking for him because she still cares about him and obviously cares about her children. It was fun. It was light. And it's a character I've really never seen before in mystery. So I loved it. Again, that's called Finley Donovan Knocks Him Dead by El Casimano. Nice. Well, I finished The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel Wilkerson. 
This is the one that was going to be my big book summer read-along challenge book, which I did not finish in the timely manner that I had originally set out to. But I've been listening to the audio and did some reading here and there too when I was at home with the book. And this morning I actually finished it by doing that thing of listening while reading, which was really enjoyable. What a book. I mean, this book, it's one of those, I hate to say it should be required reading because I don't like to should on people when it comes to books. Um, but really, it is one of those books that explains so much about America in general and the African-American experience specifically. The Great Migration, which is what this book is about, was roughly from World War I to 1970. It talks about why... African-Americans left the South and where they went to the North. She follows three different people who left the South in three different decades. So Ida Mae Brandon Gladney left Mississippi in 1937. They first went to Milwaukee, but then settled in Chicago. George Swanson Starling left Florida for Harlem in 1943. And then Robert Joseph Pershing Foster left Louisiana in 1953 for Los Angeles. It talks about their situations back where they came from and how they left, where they landed, what they did. And there's an epilogue where Wilkerson talks about her process, her research methodology, and all of the stories that she read about people and interviews that she conducted. And she landed on these three people, in part because they had a thorough story, I guess, that could be documented, but they all left from different places in different decades and lived pretty long lives. She also did a lot of research with archives, newspapers, academic articles, and things like that. Fascinating book. It's a tough read at times because it's talking about the violence of whites against blacks in the South, and then the prejudices in the North. Very eye-opening. Yeah, I wonder now that you've read it, how it will, you know, how you talk about synchronicities and how you see things in other books. When I read that book, The Black, the White, and the Gray, Masha Mabeli, who's the black chef of the restaurant, talks a lot about the Great Migration and how it affected her family and how she ended up being a child of the South that grew up in New York. Mm -hmm. So I really thought about you and thought about you reading that book as I was reading this other book. Yeah, and that's one thing that Wilkerson talks about is the impact that the migration had on American culture in general and how the children of the migrants, the people, that first generation that left, you know, the opportunities that it opened up for those subsequent generations to create different forms of music and art, writing, films. You know, she lists a lot of athletes and artists, which is just fascinating to think about the impact that it had on our culture as a whole, creatively and economically, and how we're still suffering from racism in this country because of sociologists in part making assumptions about those early immigrants and blaming the immigrants to the cities for problems that arose mm. instead of looking at what they were received into. Yeah. It's that typical thing, you know, blame the victims. Mm -hmm. So, so many fascinating things, you know, just 
in terms of like that lynchings uh, went on much longer than I think most people realize and that they were a popular social event. You know, white people took their families and had picnics. Yeah, I just can't. I can't. Yeah. yeah. Um, Florida was known as the most violent state, which was a surprising thing to learn. The man, Robert Joseph Pershing Foster, he left Louisiana for L.A. He was a doctor. When he was driving from Louisiana to L.A., he couldn't stop anywhere to sleep for the night because blacks were not allowed in hotels. And there's one point where she says, you know, he would look at cars and look to the bumper to see if there was a Confederate flag. And that was 1953. It made me just wonder how far back in time people started putting symbols on their vehicles and themselves as a form of that identification. And then a lot of railroad stuff. Very fascinating. I'm a fan of railroads. My dad was in the railroad business when I was a kid. And this is interesting because so much of the railroads were formed in part from the Civil War and afterwards, and that created migration channels for Blacks who were leaving the South. I didn't know this, that when they were coming from the North to the South, Black people had to get up and leave the seat that they paid for and go to the Black car, the colored car, as they were called, or that they would even change the cars. They would change them out when they hit a certain mark, like in Illinois, didn't know about these things. So to live under those conditions, it's just heartbreaking. Mm. And I know that racism is still heartbreaking today. It's a very big history lesson and a celebration of the human spirit that these people persevered and thrived and made such great, for the most part, better situations for their kids. So that was The Warmth of Other Suns, The Epic Story of America's Great Migration by Isabel Wilkerson. This book came out in 2010 originally, so it's just had a 12-year anniversary. I highly recommend it. I know some people read it pretty quickly. For me, it took longer. It's going to have a prominent place on my bookshelf for sure, and it's going to be a book I continue to consult it also is informing the research paper that I'm writing for that Archives, History, and Collective Memory course, which I'm sure I'll talk about in the future, a future episode. And I want to just say not to be hard on yourself because you still finished it in the summer. It's still summer. Hey, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, when I took the gentleman caller to Niantic to the book barn, we came across a little free library and found a copy of The Best of Rolled Doll which is a book of short stories. Roald Dahl, I read James and the Giant Peach when I was a kid, and it was one of my favorite, favorite books. I know he's a problematic person now in history. He was an admitted anti-Semite. His grandchildren on the Roald Dahl website have issued an apology for some of his past comments and behaviors. He still has a huge wealth of books that we can choose to read if we please. I've come to learn that his editors did a lot of editing out of some of his very racist things. I want to just say I recognize that he's a problematic person. But when I was reading the back of this, it talked about this short story called Pig, a brutally funny look at cooks and vegetarianism. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I must. So this was originally written in 1959. And it's about a, a little baby Lexington who's born to loving, doting parents in New York City 
who have finally decide to go out on a date for the first time after Lexington has been born. They hire someone to babysit. When they come home from this dinner, they're locked out of their apartment in Manhattan. So they decide to try to break in. And as they're hanging out the window, the police come and shoot and kill them. So this, this, I know Chris is the look on Chris's face. This entire short story is shocking from beginning to end. So he ends up going to live with his aunt Glosspan in the Blue Ridge Mountains, in a cottage in the Blue Ridge Mountains. Nobody around but the two of them. She is a devout vegetarian. So he only ever eats vegetarian food and he becomes a great cook. And by the time he's 17 has over 9,000 recipes that he's written down and he wants to be a cookbook author Hmm. while Miss Glosspan dies. She leaves him a letter saying, go to New York City, go to this lawyer, he's got my will. It turns out Glosspan was very wealthy, but the lawyer scams him out of all the money. He ends up leaving with a check in his pants pocket. He was a millionaire and ended up leaving with a check for $15,000 or something goes down the street to the local diner and doesn't recognize any of the food on the menu. And they end up giving him pork to eat. He has no idea what it is. They say, oh, it's pig. And he's like, well, my aunt must not have known what she was talking about because this is delicious. And that's all I'm going to say because the ending is very shocking. I screamed out loud when I got to the ending. Wow. Roald Dahl was a weird writer. He wrote really odd, strange things. And this short story is no different. It's very shocking. I loved it. Wow. Again, it's called Pig. And this is in the best of Roald Dahl. Well, you know, we're in the midst of banned books week as we record this. And I just saw today, I think every library shared a post that his book, James and the Giant Peach, has been banned in Wisconsin. Because I guess there's a scene where the spider licks her lips and it could be seen as sexual. Wow. Yeah. That's shocking to me. It's so ridiculous. Yeah. But anyway, really wild. That well, sounds like a wild story. And I mean, one of the things I loved about his books, I mean, there's also Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and a host of BFG, Matilda. Very fantastical imagery. Mm-hmm. That's what I remember most as a kid reading his books. So, but a spider licking her lips. Wow, that's shocking. Well, I also read The Keeper by Kelsey Ervick. This just published on September 20th. So it is available now. It was wonderful. This is a memoir. It's a coming of age story. It's about um, her time as a goalkeeper playing soccer as a kid in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, before Title IX, and then once there was Title IX. It's really a history of women's sports as well, but then also her coming into herself as an artist. She illustrated this book and wrote the book, and her art is beautiful. One of the things she said that I really appreciated, because she was always the goalkeeper, And the goalkeeper, you know, stands at the back and is by themselves. And she said it was great preparation for the isolation of writing. Very cool. That's a really neat analogy. I would have never put two and two together. Yeah. I don't want to talk about it more because we're actually going to be interviewing Kelsey in the future. So you'll hear more about this book. But I highly recommend it. Cool. Can't wait to read it. Yeah, it's really good. 
And we did just finish our 22nd read-along, third quarter read-along for 2022. It was The Seed Keeper by Diane Wilson. So we both read the book and we had a fantastic Zoom discussion with some book hooger community folk. And I really loved the novel. I didn't know what to expect. And I think for some reason in my mind, I associated it with Robin Walkimer's book, Braiding Sweetgrass. This was an intense book to read. So I think I was expecting The Seed Keeper to be really heavy, and I didn't find it so. I thought it was just a fantastic read. Yeah, and I think the characters were really well-developed and very accessible characters, mm-hmm. you know, which helped, and you really cared about them. And um, so it's there's four women are the main um, – well, there's one that's the main character, Rosalie – Iron Wing, and then Meister at a period of time in her life, and her friend Gabby Makepeace, and then um, Rosalie's great-great-grandmother, Marie Blackbird, and her aunt, Darlene. Those are all characters in the book. And the book spans a century, essentially. Well, yeah, a little bit more, even like from the 1860s to 2002. Yeah, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. So so it's Rosalie, who at the beginning of the book, her father has died, her mother was not in her life from an early age. So she's placed with a white family. And I think the first situation didn't work out well. And then so she's placed with a white woman, it sounds like a single woman. And that's not exactly great, but she's making it through and she's about to graduate from high school trying to figure out what to do, having a hard time finding a job. And she replies to an ad to do some corn detasseling. And so she shows up, I think it's one Saturday morning, and she and two other guys are the three that nobody picks to come and do the detasseling because it's tough work and really physical. I guess the three of those folks didn't look all that physically fit. So there's a young guy whose name is John, we find out, who's sitting back and waiting for all of the picks to be done. They're left as everyone else pulls out in the school buses to go to the fields. And he says, okay, you know, you three can come with me. So that begins Rosalie's introduction to John and her future life. Right. It's really hard to say too much because we don't want to give any spoilers Although it is a read-along book, and I think listeners know that we sometimes just dive right in with that. But with this book, it's just such a beautiful unwinding of Rosalie's life, but also her family and her people's experience back to the 1860s Minnesota. Right, during the Dakota War. Yeah. When a lot of Native people were forced to leave their land. Right. There's a scene in the book where women are sowing seeds into their clothes because they know that they're going to need those seeds to feed themselves in the future. Right. It's an incredible scene. The book is a lot about that, what seeds mean to people, how you keep everybody alive, how you have to make tough choices around them. Right. I don't remember if this is a line in the book or if it's something that one of our Zoom participants said, but the question of how do we fall back in love with our earth and with our seeds? I don't remember if that was a direct line from the book, but that's what it's about. I mean, there's a story arc where John, who Rosalie, spoiler alert, ends up marrying, owns a family farm and farming is very tough 
in Minnesota and the big industry comes to farming with the GMO corn seeds. Yeah, and they're already suffering because John already knows he can't do the same things that his father did and survive as a farmer. His dad grew up plowing the fields with horses, you know, and those days are long gone. But then to have a tractor that you have to maintain, that is such an extra cost. Not that horses weren't. I mean, you have to feed and water them. They're expensive as well. So he knows that he has to change with the times. But then, like Emily said, the GMOs come in. Right. And I mean, part of that is to try to make it, quote, easier for farmers because they're more resistant to disease. They're more resistant to weather fluctuations but they're problematic in other ways. Yeah, because they're proprietary. Mm -hmm. So you can only grow those seeds. You're locked into a contract. You have to fertilize according to their schedule. You have to plant and harvest. You have to do everything according to their schedule and to their standards. So in some ways, you're no longer really a farmer working your own land. You're almost like a corporate a contractor. Yeah. Just doing what you're told. And there is need for different sorts of pesticides. So there's also the question about the health of these seeds and the farming of these seeds. So Diane Wilson really takes on a lot with this book, but none of it is didactic, as our listener Colleen says, right? Right. Yeah, Colleen talked about how the book gives you so many lessons without being didactic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. There's some tough subject matter for sure. But it also was handled, I think, very softly. The other thing that's amazing about the book is just the way she wove the story. I mean, she did it in the the vein of how seeds grow by how she titled certain sections of the book. And she just wove the story of these different women so seamlessly, I thought. I thought so too. And the thing is that how to care for seeds and grow things, it's something that has to be taught. It's not something people innately know. One of the funny scenes, for me anyway, was when Rosalie is married to John and she finds this shoebox full of seeds that his mom had kept over the years and harvested from her garden. So John's mom was a seed keeper. And Rosalie says, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start a garden. And so I guess John tills the, the area for her. She mixes the seeds in a bowl and then flings them out into the, the tilled soil. And, you know, she's like, well, the garden's done. And he's like, wow, that was fast, you know. And uh, I think he knew what happened. And instead of criticizing her, he suggests maybe going down to the neighbors who are known to be really good gardeners. When Rosalie gets there and she sees the rose staked out at the end with what's growing there, she realizes, oh, I did it wrong. Right. So she learns that way. She had been separated from her ancestors and her family, so she was not able to learn by that passing down of the family inheritance of understanding how the seeds grow and how to use them and wisely. What, yeah, and what they do, that it's not just about growing food for humans, that animals are part of that whole cycle. If we cut out certain aspects of how seeds grow, how crops grow, we're harming the animals, we're harming ourselves. ultimately, we're harming the land. And there, there is an equation made between child abuse and land abuse, abuse of the soil. And one of the things I love that is said several times throughout the book is the idea of being a good relative, being a good relative to other people, 
to the seeds, to Mother Earth. Yeah, it's a beautiful book. If you can't tell, we both loved it so much. At the end of this episode, we have a great conversation with Diane Wilson, the author. Yeah, and I just wanted to say, um, you know, thanks to everyone who participated in that Zoom call. I know Melinda had mentioned on Goodreads that she saw on social media somebody talking about the book and just what a tough read it was for that person. And Melinda didn't find it so, and either did you and I. Mm. Um, we thought it, I mean, it does tackle painful subjects, but I think so much of it is what you've read before and what your knowledge base is on something. So maybe that person was new to coming to these types of stories. That could be a possibility. Mm -hmm. um, but just keep that in mind if you're going to be approaching the novel. And then Kim, thanks to Kim, she commented that she came away from the conversation feeling she had new ways of thinking about the novel and the characters. That's one reason Emily and I love doing those Zoom conversations with everyone because, you know, we do too. It's just so much fun and so interesting to get other people's perspective on novels and the characters and what's going on. There was one scene where I just thought, oh, but come on, that can't really be. And, you know, one of our community listeners talked about it in a different way that made me understand what Diane Wilson could have been thinking when she wrote that. Mm, yeah. You know, so yeah. I always feel like reading is elevated when you do it with others. Yeah, <laughs> it's it, a solitary process to read, but to discuss it. Oh, it's just really wonderful. Yeah, I love that reading is elevated when you discuss it with others. That is a very succinct way of saying how much we appreciate listeners who come together with us to talk about these read along books. Thank you so much to everyone who participated. And a reminder that we have a thread on our Goodreads page for all of our read-alongs. And those are there in perpetuity. So if you read the book six months from now, get on there and talk us up. We would love to hear from you. So Chris, did you go on any Biblio adventures? Well, I did. I got to attend a virtual author event with John Chaplin who's the author of uh, My Autobiography of Carson McCullers, a book I absolutely loved and adored. And I think it's really been life-changing in how I think about a lot of things in the world. She was in conversation with Robert Keston at the Stonewall National Museum and Archives in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. It was really a great conversation. I, I talked about the book in the past, so I won't go on, but she was asked why did she write the book how did this come to be and she'd been working in the archive and she's read biographies of authors but she just really wanted to show the gaps in biography that you can have two contradictory signals going on in a person's life and so often when you read a biography of somebody that's kind of glossed over it's all made into this nice neat story quite often so she really wanted to show where those breaks are and possibly why they happened, which I thought she did a great job of. So really loved that book. And it was a, a nice opportunity to see her in action talking about the book, which it just came out. What did she say? My autobiography of Carson McCullers just came out in French and Polish. So it's being published around the world now, which is cool. And I didn't know about the Stonewall National Museum and Archives. It's not related to the Stonewall Inn where the riot happened, um, but the gentleman who founded this museum and archives named it Stonewall in honor of the struggle for LGBTQ rights. 
over 50 years ago. It started in the 70s. So that was a really cool event. I'm glad I attended. I don't remember where I saw it, but I jumped on it. Right on. Well, I went on a whirlwind trip to Ohio and back. <laughs> Couldn't believe that. <laughs> I know. It was like two and a half days. We had a wedding to attend. And it was really sweet because I had like one day with my kids and we had gone for a walk in a park before the wedding and we had a couple hours until we had to get dressed. And they said, Mom, are there any bookstores around here you wanted to see? Swoon. My children love me. Or they're just trying to butter me up. Who knows? But I was like, well, as a matter of fact, there is. And I told them the name and it just so happened we were literally driving right by it. So we stopped. It's called Pop. Art Books Culture, and this is in Boardman, Ohio. It was a used bookstore, which was really cool. They had classics right in the front, so I immediately went to Steinbeck because we're looking for copies of books, and they didn't have what we were looking for, Chris. But Peter Straub, the author, had just passed away. So the gentleman caller went on a hunt for Peter Straub, and he came up with a copy of Magic Terror which is a book of short stories. And he's been really enjoying that. And I think Rachel walked away with a couple, uh, I don't know, YA novels. I didn't write down what she got, but it was a really cool store. And the art and culture, I thought with art, especially I was expecting like art supplies. That's what I had in my head. But actually, it was portraits of things and paintings that I don't know if the owner had done them. The owner's name is Craig. He was there and very friendly. He does arts and crafts events. So I'm imagining that people who attend those, maybe then he sells their work. Oh, cool. That's a guess. I didn't get the chance to ask him. There were customers there and they were all very chatty and he was very helpful. So, so that was fun. And it made a very whirlwind trip. It was fun to get a little something like that in mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> you guys were back so soon so yeah it was mostly driving a mostly driving weekend with a little bit of fun yeah <laughs> well the other biblio adventure i had was a couch biblio adventure i watched the third episode of season one of lovecraft country have you heard of that yes it's very ha popular yeah yeah and um i really loved it so i watched the third episode because it's related to some research i'm doing so lovecraft country it's based on a novel by matt ruff and i got the novel because i want to read the novel now it's kind of like fantasy set in the 1950s chicago the protagonist is a korean war veteran african-american man who leaves to go up to new england because his father's missing so that's like the first episode and I watched the third episode and it's wild because it deals with racism and monsters and then this family saga that's going on. I was kind of blown away by the whole thing. That's why I got the novel because that first season, there's not going to be a second season, unfortunately, because the whole first season, I guess, follows the novel pretty faithfully. And the second season was going to be inspired by going on with some of the themes and unfortunately that didn't get picked up so i look forward to watching the rest of this what was fascinating to me was just the way it has this unique fantasy slash horror storyline going but it incorporates a lot of historical people and racist events yeah on the cover of the book it says america's demons exposed yeah yeah. So one of the characters in that story, they're having this big housewarming party and a group of kids are playing with a Ouija board, for example. And one of the kids is dressed like Emmett Till. You know, there's that 
classic photo of him wearing the white shirt and the black thin tie. And the kid asks, will I have a good time on my trip? Mm. And of course, the Ouija board goes hard no. And then just some other things. But a really cool show. I plan on watching more. And then the novel Lovecraft Country by Matt Ruff is on my TBR. Well, I went to an event sponsored by RJ Julia's at the Madison Art Cinema. It was a one night, one show only of a documentary called Hello Bookstore. I believe it is streaming. I forgot to look and see which platform it's streaming on. But this is about a bookstore called Bookstore in Lenox, Mass. The documentarian started to film prior to COVID-19 and then was filming while everything changed in the world. And so you see the progression of the store filled with people and then this gentleman who's quite a character who's been the owner of the store for years and years and years. I mean, decades. Now he's sitting behind the glass door, taking people's credit card numbers as they talk to him through the glass pane of the door Mm. and trying to keep his bookstore open. And he's definitely not a technophile. So it's not like they had online bookstore already set up or anything like that. And eventually the bookstore really starts to falter and he does a GoFundMe campaign and raises double the funds he's looking for in a 24 or 48 hour period. Wow. Yeah. So it's a really quiet movie. It's really slow. It's mostly about this lighting and capturing the image of the bookstore and the feel of the bookstore. He's definitely the heart of the bookstore is this owner and how he likes to regale people. And I really enjoyed it. It was very thought provoking. And it really paints a picture of how important your local community is to the health of your business, Mm -hmm. because they really came to his aid and saved him and helped keep the bookstore alive. So if you get a chance to see it, I highly recommend it. Again, that's called Hello Bookstore. Very cool. Well, we'll put a link to where it's streaming if we yeah, can find I'll, that. Yeah, I'll look yeah. for that and put it cool. in the show notes. We also had a great Biblio adventure together. We went on a quick joint jaunt to have some library time. Yes, we went to the Walton Madison, Connecticut, which is the town over from us in Guilford. We went to the E.C. Scranton Memorial Library, which during the pandemic had this huge renovation. And it opened during the pandemic which I'm surprised you and I didn't go because we're such library rats. You'd think we would have been on it, but we went for the first time and had a wonderful experience there. They have new study rooms from small ones for like one or two people to then larger conference rooms and actually event rooms. But the way the book stacks are set up are also very lovely because it's all very light and very readable. All the books are a little higher, I felt like. Like the last two rows of all the shelving are empty, except for books that are oversized that are laid horizontally, which I thought was also a great way to be able to see them. Yeah, I've never seen a library do that. Yeah. It was very cool. I really like that a lot. And then they have a big maker space, a teen room. Really nice. Yeah, it's a beautiful library. I showed up a little tired from my gallivant to Ohio and opened my computer bag to find my computer was not in it. (laughs) 
so, you know, that forced me to have to go browse the cookbook section. It was hard work, but I had to do it. And I happened to find a book that I've been wanting called Simply Julia, 110 Easy Recipes for Healthy Comfort Food by Julia Tertian. These recipes are so accessible and wonderful. The pictures are great. Talk about something happening during the pandemic. She completed the whole cookbook during the course of the pandemic. So all of the photos and everything she was a part of it wasn't some food designer taking pictures in a studio somewhere. But I really like it. I highly recommend it. She has sections that are kind of different. And one of them was meals you make for yourself when you don't really want to cook. And one of them is one of my favorite meals, which is just a bowl of steamed rice with broccoli that you've sauteed with butter and soy sauce. It's delicious. Yum. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And she had it as one of the recipes, which I thought was super cool. So I made lemonade out of lemons. I mean, it's never a drag to forget your computer, I guess. You just don't have to do your work. (laughs) Chris was very industrious that day. I was not. (laughs) Well, you've got some important things done. That's right. That's right. Yeah, for sure. So upcoming jaunts, I am heading to Martha's Vineyard, and I'm hoping to get to the two bookstores there I love, which is Bunch of Grapes and Edgartown Books. And Bunch of Grapes is under new ownership, so I'm Mm. curious. That just happened. I'm curious to see if there's anything different. And then I'm also hoping to go, probably as we're coming off island, to Falmouth, Massachusetts. There's a bookstore there called Eight Cousins Bookstore which I just love that name. I'm very curious. And it just happens to be very close by to Maison Villette, which is my favorite French pastry shop there. So I'll report back. Very nice. (laughs) You have two things to report back about. That's right. Yeah. Books and pastries. Well, you know, speaking of that neck of the woods, I did not get to go to Provincetown Book Festival last weekend, unfortunately, I was going to go see Melissa Homestead talk about her book, The Only Wonderful Things, which, hooray, it just won a Nebraska Book Award. So Yay. that's cool. Yeah, my car needed new brakes. You know, that sucks. Yeah. For a couple of reasons. But, you know, Laura took it to get the oil changed and the tires rotated and they're like, you have like no brakes left. Well, I'm glad you discovered that before <laughs> you were on the highway to Provincetown. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. So that was a bummer. I'll make it there one of these days because I've never been to Provincetown. It's very cool. Yeah. And maybe we'll just go together. You know, I'm inviting myself because I've always wanted to go to that bookstore up there. Mm-hmm. And they have a library. I, I think it's relatively new library or it was just remodeled you know what we should do i'm hatching a plan as we speak is go in the winter i've always wanted to go to the cape in the winter i'm down for that yeah i love like windswept shoreline road trips in the winter let's do it and there might even be a place to stay there in the middle of winter (laughs) because there certainly isn't now (laughs) yeah i think we'd have much better luck finding a place Well, this event is on September 27th. So that's the day this episode goes live. So people might not be able to grab it unless they listen to the episode that morning. But Connecticut author named Nikki Woolfolk is going to be in conversation with Alex Jennings about his new book, which is the debut novel called The Ballad of Perilous Graves, which I think is a great title. This is a virtual event at the Mark Twain House. So Tuesday, September 27th at 7 p.m. 
And Alex's book sounds pretty cool. It is about New Orleans. And in this world, music is actually magic. The Perilous Graves is actually the name of a guy who's a failed magician. So there are nine songs of power that keep the city's beat going, and they've escaped from a piano. So fantasy, okay. Uh, but without them, New Orleans is going to fail. Hmm. So I imagine this failed magician saves the day, possibly. We'll see. But again, the book is The Ballad of Perilous Graves, Alex Jennings in conversation with Nikki Woolfolk. She's a writer of steampunk uh, books and short stories, but she's also a chocolatier mm-hmm. here in Connecticut. So, And sometimes the Mark Twain house records things, so we'll get back to you on that if they did. Yeah, I think they know. usually do. What about upcoming reads? Well, we both have a read of Small Game by Blair Braverman. This book is not out until November, but we wanted to let you know about it because you can pre-order it now and we're going to be talking to Blair in the future. This is a novel. Super, super excited about this because she wrote the book called Dogs on the Trail, A Year in the Life. And that was about the year in the life of her sled dog team. Right. And she also wrote a memoir called Welcome to the Goddamn Ice Cube, Chasing Fear and Finding Home in the Great White North. So this is her first novel, Small Game. Yeah, so, so we're both excited about that. I can't wait to dig in. Yeah. yeah, looking forward to that big time. And then I also have The Believer, Encounters with the Beginning, the End, and Our Place in the Middle by Sarah Krasnostein. And I've become a Patreon of Catherine May, the author. This is going to be her very first book club discussion book. So I'm very curious about it. It's nonfiction. I don't really know much more about it. It's a cool cover too. It's like black and silvery white. It's not exactly psychedelic, but it's one of those visually weird books. Yeah, it's visually interesting. Maybe we'll take a picture and post it. That's a good idea. Well, I will be reading All That She Carried, The Journey of Ashley Sack, A Black Family Keepsake. This is by Taya Miles. And it won the National Book Award just last year, I believe. I believe this came out in 2021. It's a book I've had on my radar to read. For one of my classes, we had to choose a book from the professor's list or movie to write a six to eight page review report on it. So this is the book that I chose. I was so excited to see it on her list. Yeah, we had considered that as one of our read along books when we were doing nonfiction last year. But then when it won the National Book Award, we were kind of afraid it'd be hard for people to get out of the library. We thought that the wait list might have gotten too long. So I'm really jealous that you're reading that. I really want to read that too. Well, you can read my report. Okay, good. (laughs) Nothing else. (laughs) I am joking. But yeah, no, we're supposed to review it in terms of like collective memory. How is collective memory represented um, throughout the the storyline? I also got my hands on a copy of After Sappho, uh, Selby Wynn Schwartz. This is a book that is on the Booker Prize list. When I asked Russell, like, what one book should I read? He's like, After Sappho. So yeah, right up my alley. Yeah. Oh, I like the cover even has the Booker Prize. I know that was quick, right? I ordered this from the book depository. Wow. And uh, it came very quickly. And yeah, it already has a little Booker Prize long list 
thing on it. Cool. One of my other upcoming reads is called The Bread the Devil Need. And that's like kneading bread. This was shortlisted for the Women's Prize for Fiction last year. It's by Lisa Allen Agostini. I requested this from the library. They didn't own it and they purchased it. And I've been waiting literally months to get it. And it just (laughs) came in. So that's going to go on vacation with me. We are going to announce our fourth quarter read along. Yes, we are so excited to read the first Cash Black Bear Mystery, Murder on the Red River by Marcy R. Rendon. We are so excited. Marcy Rendon was one of the authors we got to meet at that Soho dinner a couple months ago. You know, I feel like her name is popping up everywhere. She was in Diane Wilson's Acknowledgements. And, you know, this is a passport to crime book from Soho, meaning that it's at a low price point for a way for people to take a chance on a series. Right. And also, just to let you know, the ebook is available directly from Soho. And we will also add it to our read along list on our bookshop page. So if you're interested in helping the Cougars, you can purchase it through our bookshop page. And on Bookshop, it's $9.29. We also wanted to just let you know a little bit early about this book so you can let your libraries know if they don't own copies. I've already let our library systems know, and we've they've gotten the audiobooks in and the ebooks. Do tell all the libraries you know. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> We're super excited about that. So that is a upcoming read for both of us. We will be announcing in our newsletter what the dates are for the Zoom discussion and all that good stuff in our September newsletter. Right. And one other thing also um, in the Out Now department, books we've talked about prior to them publishing, just want to let everyone know that Lucy by the Sea by Elizabeth Strout is available now. It just came out this week. Yay. Yeah. So coming up next is our conversation with Diane Wilson about The Seed Keeper. We were really honored to have the opportunity to speak with her. We had some technical difficulties. She was very kind and experienced. You know, she's obviously been through it at this point. (laughs) So patient. Yes. It's a really lovely conversation. As we mentioned, we both loved the book so much. So get yourself a copy of The Seed Keeper. Happy Happy reading. reading. We are honored to be here today with award-winning writer Diane Wilson to talk about her novel, The Seed Keeper. Diane is also the author of the memoir, Spirit Car, Journey to Dakota Past, a nonfiction book, Beloved Child, A Dakota Way of Life, and numerous essays. She has served as executive director for Dream of Wild Health and the Native American Food Sovereignty Alliance, working to help rebuild sovereign food systems for Native people. Diane is enrolled at the Rosebud Reservation, and she is Zooming with us today from Minnesota. Emily and I would like to acknowledge that we occupy the homelands of the Quinnipiac people, specifically the Monongahatuck Band, who lived on land now known as Guilford, Connecticut. Welcome, Diane. Thank you. It's really good to be here. Diane, in the author's note, you talk about the inspiration for writing The Seed Keeper came from a 150-mile walk that you were doing to honor the Dakota people who were forcibly removed from Minnesota in 1863. Can you talk about that inspiration? Oh, yes. Thanks for asking that question. I am actually Dakota, and 
I have been in Minnesota all of my life, and I am actually calling to you from Dakota homeland. So as part of my work on a memoir many years ago, trying to understand the cultural identity in my own family and how it had changed over many years, then I got involved with the Dakota Commemorative March in 2002. And it was the first time that I'd heard about the history in Minnesota of 1700 Dakota women, children and elders who were forcibly removed from the state following the 1862 Dakota War. And so the story that I heard while I was on this commemorative walk was that the, the Dakota women didn't know where they were being sent. They didn't know how they would feed their families or what they would plant in the coming season. And so they took the time to to sow their seeds into the hems of their skirts and they hid them in their pockets so that wherever they were being sent, they knew that they would have seeds to feed their families and also to protect them for future generations. And so the hardest part of that story is knowing that on that march, families were often hungry. And so that these women had to protect these seeds, even at a time when children were hungry. And I just think of the courage and the strength that it took to, to make that kind of sacrifice so that future generations would have these seeds to grow. So that story is really at the heart of the novel. So talk about the novel itself. It's told from the perspective of four women of different generations. Can you talk about how you decided to write it as a work of fiction? So I started with that story I just mentioned about the Dakota women. But, you know, as often happens when you just have a little snippet of a story, it seemed to me that the most impactful way to share it would be to to do it as a novel so that I could invite readers to come into that experience through their imaginations and, and hopefully in that way really encourage them to imagine what that would feel like to be in that in that situation. And then I had actually intended to write it from a first person uh, single narr narrator, which would be Rosalie Ironwing, um, who is the main character. But as I was developing the novel and I was doing a writing exercise where I was I was listening to several of the characters just writing it out freehand in first person. And I realized that these other characters all had stories they wanted to tell and, and they were coming through in very distinct voices. And even the seeds, I realized that they also had a story to tell. So the poem that opens the novel also came out of that writing exercise so that the seeds themselves became almost like, in a way, they bookend the entire story because in a way they are the ones back in time who are just taking this long view of this relationship with human beings. So it was very much an organic, exploratory, experimental, often frustrating experience because you're building something from scratch. And it was my first novel. So I have to say a big learning curve. But <laughs> <laughs> Once I figured out that multi-voice format, then it made a lot more sense to me. Mm. Well, well, you got it because you knocked it out of the park. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, so the Seed Keeper has been our quarterly read-along this quarter. And just last night, we had a really great conversation um, with a bunch of listeners in the Book Cougars community talking about the novel. And so many subjects came up that all related back to the seeds and women. We talked about transformation, grief, community, fire, trauma, the parallels of what happened to the indigenous people, and then now what was happening with the farmers, with magenta. We talked about the poem at the beginning. There were questions about that, so I'm so happy you addressed that. But a big question that came up, and maybe one that might be a simple answer, we don't know, is a lot of us kept saying the seed keepers when we would talk about it or when we were writing about it, and it's actually the seed keeper, singular. So we wanted to ask you, Who is the seed keeper? (laughs) Such a good question. I think because the story is generational and spans time, that the seed keeper role is one that is handed down. So a mother hands those seeds on to her daughter, and then those go to the next generation. So that there's always a seed keeper in the family who's protecting those seeds because they are critical to survival. So I was thinking of it as a generational role that's part of the the way that knowledge has always been passed down in a traditional way so that you as a seed keeper would need to be trained by your mother or your grandmother in order to know how to plant those seeds and then how to cook with them and then how to protect them and save them. So there's a whole body of knowledge that goes into that seed work. So in my mind, it was a transitional role, but also one that applied to each one of the women. Although Gabby was more focused on water, so I would see her as the water protector, Mm. which is a parallel role that equally important. Mm. I never considered the plural form. That's an interesting thought. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and the water is interesting too, because Rosalie's son, Tommy, his name is water or mm-hmm. river, I should say, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then his white grandmother was a seed keeper herself. Yeah. Which something that came up too with Rosalie's husband, John, how he gets really derailed with magenta and the quote, new ways of farming. Well, yeah. I didn't want to vilify farmers, mm-hmm. especially when you learn more of that history and the challenges that Farmers have faced, in particular, since World War II, when Monsanto and and these other really large chemical companies began um, looking for ways to use up their leftover chemicals from the war. And then that became an agricultural application, which is a horrific, horrific concept. And then they had the idea, the vision to then also control the seeds. So I looked at the position that farmers were put in and seeing that prior to that time, how farmers were often also committed to principles of sustainability, taking care of your soil and your water and your animals and taking care of your family through this work. And so that I wanted to convey the sense that these more traditional farmers had a lot in common with indigenous practices of really taking care of land and animals and water and being in relationship and knowing that our survival as human beings and our future 
relies on our ability to do these practices in a way that is sustainable for seven generations. Mm. And so I wanted to show that common ground between Indigenous and white communities that seeds are a commons. Seeds have belonged to families for thousands of years. And that you hear all these stories of people coming, immigrating to this country and bringing their seeds with them. I heard a story about women on on slave ships who hid their seeds in their hair. Mm. There's this really long tradition of protecting our seeds. And that's what I'm hoping we get back to through sharing these stories and reminding ourselves of our common history. Mm. Mm. Yes. And I thought you portrayed the farmer's plight and how they were caught between such a rock and a hard place that if they didn't accept these new ways, they wouldn't make it and they would lose their land. And I thought that felt really realistic to me. But then also you mentioned earlier, women having a mother or a grandmother to learn from how to take care of the seeds. And we all appreciated the scene. And and this is kind of spoilery. We usually don't talk a lot about spoilers unless it's a read-along book. So um, we'll have to put a disclaimer at the beginning of our conversation. (laughs) Um, But just when Rosalie is first at the farm and she finds the seeds of John's mother and she decides she's going to have a garden. And some of us who garden got a chuckle that she mixed all the seeds together and just (laughs) kind of flung them on the tilled soil and Uh thought she was done. So that issue of knowledge and learning and how hard farming is and how hard gardening is. Yeah. We all really appreciated that. Yeah, good. Yeah, I'm I'm just coming off of a tough garden season here. So it's just a reminder of how much commitment and effort and heart it takes to do this work. Yeah. So a question about history. You know, at one point Rosalie's father says, "Folks don't know about the Dakota War." They're not taught that in school, and they don't understand their history. How much did you have to research and learn? Or had you learned this through family stories being passed down to you? I had to learn everything on my own, other than the very minimal teaching we got through school history, which generally was from a a white perspective in Minnesota, the immigrant perspective about just how treaties were signed and tribes were moved on to reservation and the story. So it wasn't until I started that memoir that I really, and, and, and part of it was just to understand why was my mother in boarding school? Why were my aunts in boarding school in South Dakota? And how could their life be so different? So I that's when I started learning about all of these assimilation programs, but in particular, uh, boarding schools and the impact that they have had on many generations of Native families. And then I put it all together in a memoir and shared that back with my own family, because none of us knew. My mother and my aunts went to the schools, but they had no idea why they were created or what their purpose was. So it was a way of sharing my family history back with my own family, and then discovering that there were so many people with a similar story of not knowing what their family history was, or even what their general community history was. So 
each of my books has been a way of not only sharing a story, but putting it in the context. So that when you see, for example, in a memoir, how identity changes across generations through these assimilation programs, then you understand how much of this has been a very forced assimilation process. So each book led to the next one. And in the novel, then, it was understanding that our food and our way of life and the way that our cultures understand a relationship to the earth through our food is something that has been used against Native communities as a way of controlling them. Mm -hmm. So the history is just, I was never big on history in school, (laughs) but you know, when it comes to your own family and your communities and, and then feeling a responsibility as a writer, I want people to know this. I want them to see what's happening to our food systems, to our seeds, to our families. Yeah, we've talked a lot on the podcast about how part of why some of us think we weren't very interested in history in school has a lot to do with how it's taught. Yes. Not having context for what you're learning and prattling off a bunch of dates and wars. So your book really helps understand a part of history in a very accessible way. Thank you for that. Yeah, Yeah, good. Yeah, well, and even just the issue of when children were taken to these schools, I guess I was under a naive impression that the families knew that the kids would be going, but no, they were actually kidnapped and taken and that the kids were taught when they see a white man coming to run into the woods and hide. And I think like writing that in this novel where you care about the characters, it it does bring it to a heart level and a much more emotional level than nonfiction can or history Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I agree. And that's what I was hoping was just to bring that history alive and, and some of the really devastating ways that children were targeted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And then with the siblings, you know how the one sibling was able to avoid being sent to school mm-hmm. and then um, her her sister and two brothers who came back and how their lives turned out. That was just really heartbreaking. Mm hmm. That was a way to just convey this sense of when we look at some of the challenges and issues that communities are facing today, then it's also essential to see what the root is, Mm -hmm. these traumatic experiences where that trauma has been passed down through generations. And again, it's understanding the impact of those boarding schools and what they have done to Native communities Yes. Yeah. Well, um, to get back to the seeds, I was hoping to ask you just to talk a little bit about a very short two sentences. And I believe this is when Gabby is saying this to Rosalie. Some seeds need fire to sprout. What if you're that seed? Mm. So Rosalie was passive in the beginning that she conveys that sometimes you've been beaten down by your life, by foster family, by just the trauma of what you've been through to not want to take action, that it's just, you know, you've kind of given up on what you can do. And so that idea that the way fire can sometimes activate a pine cone, for example, the seeds to be ready to germinate. 
than for Rosalie, that moment of deciding that she has to rescue the seeds no matter what. In a way, I feel like that is her connecting with a very deep ancestral place in her own body and unconscious mind that she holds that what I refer to as the blood memory Mm. of how important those seeds were to survival. And when she was put in a crisis moment, she acted Mm -hmm. and she protected those seeds. So for me, that was kind of a pivotal moment for her. Mm. Mm. Yeah, she rescued the seeds and she put out the fire. Yeah. Meanwhile, Mm -hmm. John goes out to get the garden hose and then (laughs) accuses her. You know, that was just, that was not taking care of their son. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) When she's, yeah, the hero of the day. Yeah. Yeah. Hard decisions, though. I mean, over and over again in the story, a lot of hard decisions about seeds and humanity. And what we will do to protect not only our own children, but, you know, our grandchildren and future generations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in the author's note, you talk about the fact that 94% of global seed varieties have disappeared. Mm -hmm. With the research you've done for this book and just your own gardening and awareness that you have, is there something to be hopeful about there? Is there some change happening with Seed Saver and things like that? I think there's a lot more awareness these days and just seeing what's happened around food in general, certainly in Minnesota and at least our Twin Cities area, you know, a really vibrant local food community. And the changes that I've seen in 20 years in the indigenous food community, where we had gone from really a a lack of widespread understanding about what are the indigenous foods and why are they so important? How do we grow them and cook with them? And now in Minneapolis, we've got, you know, Awamani, which is a James Beard, twice awarded indigenous food restaurant. So I see changes like that as being hopeful. I also see people taking interest in seeds in particular, but also just becoming more active in what can I do to make change somewhere, Mm -hmm. to care about something, whether it's animal water, something that matters to you greatly enough to protect. So I'm, I don't know if I can go so far as to say hopeful, but I just remain committed to whoever these relatives are that remain here then we have that responsibility to take care of them. Mm. So that's, that's more my approach. You mentioned earlier that you were doing a writing exercise, writing by hand. We have a lot of writers who listen to the podcast and I was curious about what a writer's writing process is. So would you mind talking a little bit about how you write? I generally start somewhere in the middle of the book. And what I think is it doesn't matter where you start because you'll just figure out from that place what happened after and what happened before. And then because I like a form that is more, it's not linear, then I put the pieces together more like a puzzle anyways. Just starting somewhere that you have kind of a clear image of and you have strong feelings about. So you start in that place because that to me means that's something that is really important to the book. 
And where I started was Rosalie at the cabin and trying to imagine her as a woman who has pretty much lost everything. She doesn't have a family. She doesn't have a connection to her community or her language. Then how does she recreate her life herself? How does she go on this journey of grief and searching for her own identity and her way back to her community? And so I wrote in both directions at the same time meaning I kind of skipped around, but the the ending came to me early, early on in the process. So then that really helped know how the beginning would have to shape. But I want to share with any reader that I think as writers, we have to be willing to descend into chaos mm. at some point. And that means you're truly doing the exploratory work. And it can take a while to climb your way out of it, but it just means you're willing to explore and really find out what this story is about. Because I, I feel that as writers, when we're really doing the deep work of the story, that we open up to, you know, we are, we're a hollow bone. We're a portal to ancestral stories. And so you need to be in that place of really open to what is coming through. And that that's where we pass on essentially the stories that need to be told. And my hope when I was putting this together was to be conveying those lessons and teachings and stories that are ancestrally rooted. And it's hard work to get to that place. But best piece of advice I ever got from Sherry Register, one of my writing teachers and mentors was, Trust the process. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Your gut says go there, go there. That's great. <laughs> That's great advice. Thank you so much for sharing uh, that. And uh, last question, we could keep you here all day, but we recognize you have other things to do. <laughs> you have another book coming out on October 4th called yes. Where We Come From. Can you talk a little yeah. bit about that? It's actually a picture book. That was co-written with three other writers, John Coy, Sun Young Shin, and Shannon Gibney. And each of us come from very different backgrounds, but we co-wrote this story together. We actually, we go all the way back to bacteria. And then through this long process, we come to our own communities and just share highlights of what those stories are and bring them into who we were today. So it's a way of encouraging young readers to see themselves and their own stories and to think about where they come from. So I'm I'm really excited to to have my first picture book come out. Yeah, that's <laughs> awesome. Great. I can't wait to read it. Diane, thank you so much for writing this novel. One of our listeners that was on the Zoom discussion last night talked about how Milkweed Editions in the back of the book talks about how they they like to produce transformative works. And there is no doubt that this book has transformed all of us that have read it. And we really appreciate that you dug deep into that marrow <laughs> and found the stories. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you for sharing that. That means everything to me as a writer. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back again in two weeks with another episode. Until then, come chat with us on social media. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, we would love to have you join our community. 
All of the books that we talked about in this episode are listed in the show notes, which you can find at bookcougars.com. Each book will link to our bookshop.org page where your purchase will help support not only the book cougars, but also independent bookstores everywhere. And if you're an audiobook listener, we do have a special offer from Libro.fm. You can find all of this information on our website. Again, that's bookcougars.com. Thanks, everybody. This episode is edited by Pat Keogh Sound Design.